Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, and, you know, I think that there's maybe not a more like iconic picture in my mind of Christmas than a picture like this of kids looking out a window, kind of like a frosted window pane, if you will, uh, looking at the snow with a Christmas tree, just hoping that Christmas will be here soon. Just waiting for 25 days, for 40 days, for 50 days, however many days it is, hoping that it comes really soon. It's this just picture of really beautiful anticipation. And our kids do this. If you don't know, if you've ever come over to our house, our kids do this every time the guests come over. Sorry, Sanaya, I will tell your business right here, but this is what they do. They sit in our dining room window and they stare out for a while before other people get here and they get more and more excited and then when they see the car show up and start to drive down our street coming towards our house they jump up and they yell and then our dog jumps up and starts barking like crazy little 14 pound dog that's what they do really well and so then everybody's going crazy they run to the door open the door they run out they're waving depending on how well they know you they either give you a high five a fist pump or a hug and And like the joy is obvious, right? You know that they want you to be at our house at that moment. Uh, It's a pretty clear uh, reality. Um, I don't do joy-filled anticipation as well as my daughters, though. Uh, I'm not quite as good at that um, personally. For instance, if I can give you... Uh, an example. Uh, I went to Indonesia about 10 years ago with a, a team from the church that I was going to at that point. And I was anticipating, I was excited about many things. I was excited about going to this very well-populated island on the other side of the world and doing ministry and seeing what Jesus was up to and meeting new people. I was excited about all those things. And I was really excited about a cup of coffee. This coffee, Kopi Luwak coffee, is the most expensive cup of coffee you could get in the entire world. If you get it here in the United States, it goes for between $35 to $100 per cup. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Thirty, Yeah, exactly. Joy's like, this is a problem right there. For coffee, let me tell you, if you buy a pound of it, it's $100 to $600 for a pound of the pure stuff, the real stuff. And so I was excited because a cup of this coffee costs $10 in Jakarta. $10 fits in my budget. Like, I can deal with that one. That works pretty well. And so I was really excited to get a cup of this coffee. And so we go to the cafe when we're in Jakarta, and we sit down, and they bring it to us, and I start drinking it. And like, I was just in heaven. It was so rich and smooth. And I'm not going to tell you why it's so expensive. You can do that research on your own. But like, it was amazing. It was really, really good. And in that moment, I became that American tourist. And I said, you know what? I'll take another cup. (laughs) $20 down for these cups of coffee at that point. Uh, I spent so much time looking forward to this little cup of coffee. So we did another thing on that trip that was touristy. And my attitude was a little different about this one. Uh, So we went to Mount Bromo. It's a volcano outside of Malang, a city in Indonesia. And experiencing Mount Bromo is a two-part adventure. 
first part is you have to wake up really early in the morning, hike up a mountain to this viewing point where you look over the volcanoes and the mountains in the distance for the sunrise. Then you go back down and you go to Mount Bromo and you climb up it and you look inside the volcano. Pretty fun, right? So, so we hiked up. We woke up at 2 a.m. on Sunday, Sunday night, really, after preaching at three services the day before, multiple churches all over the place. 2 a.m., we wake up, and we drive to this spot. As you can see, I, I appropriately Instagrammed it. Now, that's like 2012 style of how we did things back then for, for photography, so it may look a little different today. Um, but it was beautiful. Like, it, it, was, it was pretty amazing. But I didn't enjoy it at all. If you don't know this about me, I don't like hiking. Like, I really don't like hiking. I really like sleeping. <laughs> and I really don't like waking up, like, in the middle of the night to go do something. Like, those are not my three favorite things. So this set me up pretty poorly. And our team leader was not thinking very well. If he would have just bought me a stinking $10 cup of coffee, I would have been happy. But he didn't do that. And so instead, I'm in a terrible mood for this whole ordeal. So we climb up and we go and we see the sunrise. And everybody's like, oh, that was so amazing. And then we climb back down and we go to the van. And then we drive, I forget how far it was, but we drove to Mount Bromo. And when we get there, we, we get out and immediately we're assaulted by the ash because it's still an active volcano. So when it blows, you know, it leaves some residue. And I'm not talking about a little bit amount of ash. I'm like inches thick covering everything. And it was windy. Nobody told us it was going to be windy or that there was going to be this much ash. So we get out of the van and immediately like our face, our mouth, everything is covered in ash. It was disgusting. So we quickly get back in the van, try and grab whatever we could to wrap around our faces. And then we start walking and we walk towards Mount Bromo. And it's like, again, it's thick. So it's like walking in sand or snow. Uh, like it takes something out of you. And the more you walk, the dirtier you're getting. And my shirt or whatever was blocking my mouth wasn't doing all that good of a job. And like when I got to the mountain, I was so disgusting. Like it was so nasty. And the only thing that I could think about was the fact that other people were riding camels and horses to get there. And I was like, how come that guy gets nice things? Like, I don't understand like why I'm doing it this way. Like, is there like a message, like a goal that you're trying to teach me right now? And so we climb up that, that staircase to the top. You can kind of see people at the top there. And we reached the top and volcanoes stink. And I expected that, right? Like this smells like sulfur or whatever. What I, so I, the smell is one thing. I'm already kind of in a bad mood. And then I look down now, maybe, I don't know. I'm a nerd. So maybe I was expecting like Frodo, you know, getting ready to throw the ring and like it's bubbling or like something cool. And I look down and there's like ash and trash people had thrown their trash into this volcano i'm not talking about like two pieces of paper enough that it was everywhere inside this thing and so i looked down 
ash and trash. And this is what I did. I turned around and I walked back down. I was like, I'm done. Like, I am going home. Walked back to the van, got in, sat there. was like, can I go take a shower and a nap? And then we'll call it a day. Like, I was done. Everybody else on the team thought it was hilarious how cranky I was at that moment. I didn't think it was that hilarious, but that's what it is. I just wanted to take a shower at that moment. Uh, people respond to anticipation different ways. Either, usually you respond one of two ways, either with joy, eagerly with joy, or anxious and frustrated. Anticipation is the act of waiting for something to happen that's going to either bring joy or suffering. How do you react when you're in a place of anticipating, of waiting, of longing for something to happen? What does it bring up inside of you? Which reaction do you have in those moments? You know, the people of God throughout the Bible have been a people that wait. In the Old Testament, from the time of David, which is like around the Psalms, to the time of Jesus, it's about a thousand-year period. And there were all of these prophetic words, these prophecies given about the Messiah that was going to come, the one who was going to free them and bring them out of oppression and uh, kind of reestablish God's people as the preeminent people and show everybody who he was and what he was up to. And so there's all these prophecies coming out over a thousand years And in that thousand years, they were oppressed, they were exiled, they were taken into like quasi-slavery, like it was not good times for the people of Israel. And so during that time, as they're waiting for the Messiah to come, people became skeptical. They start saying like, is the Messiah actually coming? I'm not quite sure that this is actually a real thing. Like, I'm not sure anything's actually going to happen. And they instead start to rely on systems that they've created, systems of rules, systems related to power, creating these measurables that at least they could be in control of instead of just waiting on God. And then Jesus comes. And for the people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, everything changes. For those who don't, the waiting continues, and it's continued to this day. For those who believed, the waiting ended. And then Jesus died, and it was like, oh, we got that one wrong. And then he rose again. Oh, yay, this is awesome. And then he disappeared. And all of a sudden, the waiting has begun. Another 2,000 years of waiting for God to come and to be completely in charge in our world. That's what the church has been waiting for. For 2,000 years, we've been waiting for Jesus to return for a time when sin and death and suffering are no more and all things are made right. The people of God, the church, is a people that wait. So let me ask, like, has, let's do a little self-assessment as the church. Have we waited well for the past 2,000 years? Or have we done things similar to what the Israelites did? Have we become skeptical, wondering if God's actually going to return, if Jesus is going to come back? Have we fallen into patterns of reliance on rules and power, creating systems to give us some semblance of control? Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour when he's going to return, only the Father, which means that we have to wait on an unknown. And that's a really hard thing to do. It's hard to wait for something when you have no idea of when it's coming. But this Christmas season, this Advent, this time of waiting, 
looking ahead towards Jesus' return. I believe Jesus wants us to teach us what it looks like to wait with hope. This isn't like uh, the biblical hope. It's not like blind optimism, though, like we sometimes think of hope. It's grounded, and it's a choice. It's a choice to believe in what the man who, who walked out of a grave actually said. To trust that something as incredible as that is actually going to happen again in our world because he told us that it was going to. And this is something that I hope that you kind of grab a hold of this morning is that hope looks back in order to move forward. Hope has to look back in order to move forward. In Matthew 12, we see Matthew writing about Jesus, and he's quoting one of the prophets who were waiting in Isaiah 42, and he says this, He left that area, and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and, I will, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will cause justice to be victorious and his name will be the hope of all the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you this morning that you have come, that you didn't leave us alone when you went back to your Father, but that you sent the Holy Spirit. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you will come and just really make yourself felt among us this morning. Let us know that you're active and moving in our lives. Speak to our hearts with clarity. Make us aware of your character, of who it is that you are. We give you this space. I thank you for the good things you have for us, for the ways that you love us. And we ask for you to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is hope? You know, we hear a lot about hope at Christmas, right? In a lot of different ways. Song titles, Christmas movies, hoping for presents. You know, Christmas is like filled with wishes and like longed for things, right? Uh, is anybody hoping for a Christmas present this year? You got something on your mind? Raise your hand, throw it up there. I know you do. Patrick, you can own that. You have a good, yeah, there you go. Thank you. Now, has anybody hoped for something so well that you went and bought it and gave it to your spouse so that they'll actually give it to you this year? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> That's a whole different type of hope right there. Uh, <laughs> we hope for presents. We hope for things. Uh, we, we, we hope that it snows on Christmas Eve. Like right when we're going to bed and then it covers everything so that when we wake up, it's like magical. But I only want it to be like a little bit of snow that it covers everything and not enough that I have to do actual work because it's Christmas day, right? Like we hope for that. 
you know, we, if, if you're single, maybe you're, you're hoping for this. You're hoping that you're going shopping this year and you bump into somebody who is attractive and smart and funny and just like your perfect person and they'll like you back even though you may not fit all of those categories as well because that's what ho- happens in the Christmas movies and so we believe that that's what's going to happen to us, right? That's, I mean, that's serendipity. Like, I can name all the movies. I watch them. I like them. But, like, we hope that these things are going to happen because it's Christmas. You know, it's a season of hope. So what is hope? Well, maybe this will clarify it for you. Francis Bacon said that hope is a good breakfast but a bad supper. I guess that's appropriate coming from a man named Bacon, right? Uh, One man said that hope is the only bee that makes honey without flowers. Emily Dickinson wrote that hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tunes without the words and never stops at all. I have no idea what any of those things mean. Like, I legit, like, I've read them so many times, and I still don't know what it is that they're trying to tell me in those moments. Like, what is hope? Hopefully this will help a little bit. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, which the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for hope that is most commonly used is this word kava, which means to wait for. And the root for the word kava is the word kaf, which means accord. And so the idea behind this word is that uh, when you pull a cord tight, a rope, you know, a string, yarn, whatever cord you have. I won't rip up one of Brian's cables over here, but that sort of thing. When you pull it tight, you produce tension. There's pressure that all of a sudden starts to show up in that moment that doesn't get released until you let it go. And so that's what this idea of kava means. It's a feeling of tension and expectation while you wait. That's what hope is. Now, this is an idea of hope that I could get behind, unlike Sir Francis Bacon, who I do not understand. Like, this makes sense to me because I know what tension feels like. I know what it feels like to have pressure. You know, how are you guys experiencing tension in your lives today? Did you get an oil bill that looks like twice as much as what you paid last year? And you don't have twice as much money in the bank as you did last year? You feeling a little bit of tension there? You're feeling tension with your kids, tension in your marriage, tension because your company just said that they're going to downsize and you were the first one in, or you feel like your position isn't necessary at the way that some others, and you're worried that you're going to lose your job. Where are you feeling tension and pressure in your life? In those moments, the Bible tells us that we need to have kava. We need to have hope. And in the Bible, hope is always about waiting, but we're not waiting for an unknown. We're waiting for God, who we know, whose character is known to us. One theologian said that the biblical hope isn't focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize that there's no evidence things will get better, but you choose hope anyway. It's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. Trusting in nothing other than God's character. What's God's character? 
How have you experienced the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your life? Have you experienced his gentleness in moments when you needed handled with kid gloves? Have you experienced his kindness in moments that you may not have felt worthy of kindness? His patience? I won't even add an extra to that because I think we all can come up with an answer, a reason in our mind for that. Have you experienced his love? Not just that he's loving, but that he is love, which means that it's always there, never disappears. Doesn't matter what you do. Always love. Who do you know the character of God to be? David models how to do this in Psalm 25 when he says, lead me by your truth and teach me for you are the God who saves me. All day long, I put my hope in you. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Look at the path that David lays out here as he talks about this. He says, lead me forward because you've saved me in the past. He says, I put my hope in you because you are compassionate and loving to others. When? Long ago. In moments of tension and pressure, we need to be looking back so that we can move forward. We have to rely on who God is so that we can take the steps that we need to take in the future. When you're unemployed or your spouse is unemployed or you're underemployed, you have to lean into God saying things like David did, lead me forward because you saved me in the past. When your bills feel like they're higher than your paycheck is, teach me and lead me. You are God who saves me. When your boss is taking out his stress and his anxiety on you, you're feeling the pressure from that. I put my hope in you, Jesus, because you were compassionate and loving to others in the past. When my marriage feels like it's crumbling and I'm not quite sure what to do and I've tried everything and I'm unsure of what step that I need to take all day long, I put my hope in you. When my relationship with my kids is falling apart because of how I emotionally reacted to something that they said or did, teach me your compassion and your unfailing love. When the pressure is mounting, I look back at the character of God. My God, who I know. And then I can move forward with hope. The beautiful thing about the Bible, though, is that sometimes things take on a new view when Jesus comes into the picture. And hope transitions when it goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It moves from being an expected ideal, trusting in nothing other than God's character, to being an embodied reality. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1 and see what Peter says about hope. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Concerning this salvation, which means new birth through the resurrection of Jesus, what Peter just talked about, 
the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the messiah and the glories that would follow it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at what Peter's saying here. He's saying that the people who waited, the people who waited for a very long time, for a thousand years, the Israelite prophets from the Old Testament, the people who've prophesied about a coming Messiah, that their waiting was not wasted, but their waiting was for us. They're waiting from a position of looking back in order to be able to move forward was a gift to you and I showing us who Jesus is. Showing us what hope actually looked like. And maybe a few of us here say like, I need to know that my waiting is not wasted. Maybe you can connect with that and you can say, yep, I've been waiting for a while and I'm still waiting. And I need to know that it's not wasted, that it's not pointless, but that it's because God's still going to do something, that he's still true, that I still know who he is, that he still loves me, that he's still moving in my life and in the lives of whoever it is that I'm waiting for. Maybe we need to know that God is still going to move and that that comes in the person of Jesus. Because hope became a person. That's what Peter tells us here. The Greek word for hope in the New Testament that's most often used is the word elpis. And elpis means an expectation of good. An expectation of good. Jesus, the living expectation of good. It's not an ungrounded or or idealized expectation. Uh, It's not a Christmas movie expectation. It's not, you know, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas expectation. It's a grounded person, like embodied reality that we know through the one who came, lived, and died, and then rose again. It's the person of Jesus. Jesus, the living hope, the one spoken of in Isaiah that Matthew then quotes. Jesus, who is my servant, whom I have chosen. He's my beloved who pleases me. God says that he puts his spirit upon him and that Jesus will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed. He won't crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. That's who Jesus is. And he will still cause justice to be victorious. In his name, Jesus will be the hope of all the world. That's who Jesus is. That's who he is and what he's up to. C.S. Lewis, a great author, he wrote, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down to the very roots and seabed of nature that he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. 
He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. That's what we're waiting for. That's what hope looks like when God's the one who's working in our lives. When the tension seems to be too much, when the pressure's mounting, when everything seems dark and you're not quite sure where to actually put your foot, when you feel weighed down underneath everything that's sitting on top of your back, hope says, guess what? You may feel this low. God's even lower and he's lifting up. He's standing up. He's picking you up. He's carrying the thing that you can't carry. He's releasing the tension and the pressure that is on top of you. He's moving. And we have an expectation of his goodness. We remember his character. We remember his sacrifice. And we have hope. How do we remain spiritually healthy in the face of tension and pressure? Peter says that we simply have to do this. We allow ourselves to be made new in the living hope of Jesus. Because we believe that the living hope is still moving in our world today. Mm -hmm.